Hello, and welcome to Commerce Confidential. I'm your host, Randy Cole. Website accessibility is top of mind for many of us in the digital space, and some might say this focus is long overdue. Crafting digital experiences that are not only usable, but accessible to all audiences is a critical component of the creative and technical process. To dive deeper into this topic, I'm joined by two special guests, Rose Liu, Senior Creative Technologist, and Lauren Rose Coliani, Senior UX Designer, both of whom are colleagues of mine at Gorilla Group, a Wonderman Thompson company. We have a ton to cover, so let's get to it. Hello, Lauren Rose and Rose, thank you for joining Commerce Confidential. Happy to be here. Yeah, thank you. And we're happy to have you. This is going to be a great conversation. So, you know, let's get right to it. To design for inclusivity, you must acknowledge exclusivity. But at a really high level, what are we talking about when we aim for inclusivity and accessibility? What are the goals of it? And I'll start with you, Lauren Rose, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, I think one of the biggest things when talking about accessibility is really changing that mindset that we are not designing for disabilities, but we're actually designing for universal design. And that mindset's really important just because we're not focusing on who needs this to access the web, but we're actually using universal design similar to how we use it in architecture to appeal to almost everybody. So I think the the mindset is really the biggest part for me. Rose, do you have anything to add to that from your side, like at a high level, what we're talking about with accessibility yeah. and inclusivity? Yeah, I agree with that. Um, there's a, um, I don't remember who said it, but there's a great quote that um, someone in the industry said once that was accessibility is just usability for more people. And I think that really encapsulates what we're trying to talk about, right? Like in the end, the goal is to let as many people access this experience or information or what have you as possible. Okay. No, it's great to get us kind of level set there. And, you know, there's a whole, you know, communication and terminology are important when discussing this topic. So, Rose, I'm going to go over to you. You know, what language and perspective can be helpful as we speak about accessibility? Yeah. So, the most important thing, I think, is that you have to remember that when you're talking about people with disabilities, you're talking about people, right? And you're talking about a historically marginalized group of people. So, I think the most important thing is to whatever language you're using to be respectful. Mm-hmm. If a group of people overwhelmingly prefer a certain nomenclature for themselves, use that. If someone gently corrects you, you know, accept that correction. And just generally, like, I think as long as you're being respectful of and like mindful of sort of like the historical context of accessibility, but disability in general, people are pretty forgiving of honest mistakes. Of course. And Lauren Rose, anything you would like to add there? Yeah, so kind of tagging off that, like making sure we're using people first language um, is obviously really important. Don't just diagnose the disability, um, but also the person behind that. Um, And then it's just some acronyms that go along with accessibility. So accessibility, universal design, an acronym that is used a lot is A11Y. Um, So if you ever see that out there, that is the short term, the short way to say accessibility. And it basically just stands for between the A and the Y, there are 11 characters. Um, So that's what it means. (laughs) And then the other acronym is WCAG, which we'll get into a little bit later, but that actually um, are the standards that are used for accessibility. Okay. No, that's great to know. And I certainly wasn't uh, aware of the first one. So that's great to get that mm-hmm. understanding. The whole subject is about human senses and usability. And I'll step out of, for a second to say, 
you know, within digital experiences, all of us are hamstrung to a degree because we only really have sight and sound are the primary interactions we have, right? But and limitations, you know, for individuals might be permanent, they might be temporary or situational. So how does design solve for differences across the spectrum? And I'll look at you, Lauren Rose, to, to give me a starter on this one. Sure. This is actually one of my favorite things to talk about. And I think this really details out that universal design rather than looking at accessibility. And I think this really puts into perspective how important that universal mindset is. Just to kind of give a background on the differences here between permanent, temporary, and situational. And so this just kind of details out that regardless of if you are in a situation um, that limits your ability, meaning that if that is permanent, temporary or situational, whatever we do moving forward is actually going to help all three of these categories. And an example of this would be, let's say like hearing loss, you know, that that's permanent and something that we do to help that would be closed captioning. Um, So temporary, you know, this could be like you had a procedure done and your temporary, your hearing has declined temporary, but it'll come back. And then situational would be public transit. Um, You know, you are in a public situation where you are not able to uh, listen to something out loud. Maybe you forgot your headphones, they're broken, you don't have them with you. Regardless, that should still feel natural. Um, You should still have access. And even though you don't classify as having a disability, you are still using something that is accessible first, um, which is universal design. Okay. And then Rose, I'll, I'll kind of take it back over to you for this as well is, so from a technical side, how does design solve for the differences across what we, what Lauren Rose was just discussing? Yeah. So uh, in general, basically, um, like the example of the closed captioning, you give people options, right? So in the case of closed captioning, they can choose between using the captions and using the uh, the audio um, to to consume that content. And so as we build the site, you know, there's sort of like you have, for example, images. What we do is for images is we give them alt text or like alternative text. And that's basically like a text-based equivalent to the image. And so from a technical perspective, that's something that if the user is using, for example, a screen reader, the screen reader will be able to pick up that text and then read out loud to the user. So now they have access to the same information as a visual user would based on the image. Okay. That makes that makes a lot of sense. And then I'll I'll segue into one. This is you know strictly for Lauren Rose, but you know, Rose, if you have anything you, you think about, you can certainly add in. You know, when we're regarding the process of building any kind of digital experience, um, a website, an app, a kiosk, who was involved in the process, you know, and when do they get involved? How do you, you know, plan and execute? these experiences and I'll leave it really mobile as well. Mobile being a, a dominant um, interface for so many of us these days, how does that all come together? Lauren Rose. Sure. Um, so I kind of want to take a step back a little bit and take a look at an example that I think could really lay this out for anyone who might not be as familiar with the tech process or just universal design accessibility in general. Um, so comparing this to something like uh, architecture, you know, if you have someone who is, 
building a building, they're still going to have to keep codes in mind. They're going to have to keep that permanent, temporary, and situational aspects still in mind. There are plenty of people that they have to meet with in order to abide by these codes and making sure that they're checking this off their list. And that is almost identical to how we do it um, in design. You know, the sooner the better. Um, So typically, you want to make sure that we are having these mindsets right at the forefront. You want to bring it in right in the research As we typically move forward in our design process, we want to make sure that we have checkpoints uh, with our entire project teams to make sure that we're abiding by that. Um, Kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier with those WCAG standards, they don't just fall on the development side. They don't fall on just the UX person. They kind of account for a lot of different departments. Um, UX design and development happen to be the most within the standards that we have to really focus and making sure our mindsets are abiding by that because we fall into most of the standards, but copywriters or content strategists, they Mm -hmm. still have standards that they need to follow. Uh, Visual design still has standards that they need to follow, which means that our project teams need to have an understanding of this as well. Uh, Because when we come to them, even our account managers, our project managers, our insights team, SEO even, we need to make sure that we are aligned in making sure that everyone has this mindset so that when we're viewing things from so many different perspectives, that we're still keeping that universal design in mind. Um, And then typically, like I was saying, within the project, we have checkpoints uh, where we meet with our internal team before we go to client reviews or, you know, move forward that way. And that's typically one area um, besides looking at it in your individual department to look at it as a whole to make sure we're checking off these standards. And then handoff to dev is a really important one, making sure that we are doing a checklist of those standards before we hand off to dev. Testing usually happens in, I'm sure Rose can speak to this a little bit more, but um, usually happens after development is done. We do Q&A where we uh, specifically look at accessibility as well. Wow. Rose, I mean, that was, <laughs> Lauren Rose covered a lot there. Anything that you'd, you'd care to add there, Rose, or we, you think we, we covered all the bases? I mean, she covered, I think she covered pretty much everything. Yeah. I mean, let's simplify it. I mean, it's a very complex process, right? Mm-hmm. And it's not just a, an individual or a team. It's teams of teams coming together, communicating, working hand in hand, um, and collaborating throughout the process to make sure what was the vision becomes reality in a accessible and inclusive way. I mean, if that is a fair yeah. summation. I was going to say that that, to bring it down a little bit, I agree. So you as an individual person on the team have your own standards that you have to abide by, but then you have to make sure that you're accounting for the universal design as your team as a whole. And then you have to test uh, to make sure that you are abiding by those standards. And just like you were saying that it came to life in the way that you wanted. Yep. And that's actually a great segue into our, our next question. For some organizations, I think, you know, accessibility might be a form of risk mitigation, but for me, creating, you know, accessible experiences isn't just a legal necessity. It's the right thing to do in general. That said, you know, there's been dominoes when Dixie, some very high profile cases where companies have not really complied and, and have been penalized, but there's a lot of ambiguity around, you know, I remember when I was client said, people would ask, is our site ADA compliant? Is it Does it pass uh, any sort of standards? So are there actual legal guidelines 
you know, is there such a thing as ADA compliance and are there specific laws that we need to keep in mind as we're making and creating these experiences? Rose, do you want to start with that or? Yeah, I can start with that. Um, So ADA stands for the Americans with Disabilities Act, and it's a piece of civil rights legislation that prohibits discrimination against people with disabilities. It was actually drafted in like late 80s, like I think it was passed in 1990. But then the you mentioned the Domino's case, that was actually the case where the courts ruled that ADA does apply to websites. And so, you know, like this is obviously a US specific piece of legislation, but there's like other uh, legislation elsewhere in the world, including Canada and in the European Union. But Mm -hmm. it is primarily a non-discrimination legislation, which means it's like very, very vague in terms of like implementation and how it applies to the real world. So when we say ADA compliant, the ADA just asks for what accommodations are readily achievable, which is going to vary depending on like whether we're talking about a physical building or whether we're talking about a website, right? So in the context of web, when people ask like if something is like quote ADA compliant, really what they want to know is does this website follow the industry standard, which for web means following the latest version of the WCAG up to the standard level, which is AA. Lauren Rose, anything else to add there? I see you nodding a little bit. Yeah, yes. Um, So just a little bit of context about why this has been kind of a gray area in the United States. I feel a lot of people can and have been confused about what ADA compliance actually means for their website. And just to give a little brief history on why it was so confusing, like Rose touched on, the Domino's case uh, was the first one. Um, And so they went to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court ruled that the ADA did cover um, the internet and websites in general. And then there was kind of this gray area afterwards of, well, how do we become compliant? You know, no one really knew what that meant. And so the WCAG standards were created, but it wasn't until last year of January in 2021 that the government actually picked those up. Up until then, it was kind of like, you know, you hoped, you know, you would follow AA compliance and that would be great and you kind of hope for the best and that you were doing your due diligence. But as of January of 2021, the United States government officially came out and said that the WCAG standards, AA compliance is what they're going to be moving forward with uh, to prevent any type of lawsuit. That's great. I mean, you've got to have guardrails to know how to stay in the lane. And so that's, I mean, certainly helpful from design, from UX, from, you know, a technology point of view. And Rose, Thank you for broadening the picture. I kind of took that question in a very US-centric way. Obviously, EU has led in a lot of things like you know privacy and accessibility, Canada as well, and of course, the rest of the world. So I didn't mean to, to keep us in the US box there, but uh, I'm a victim of my circumstance here. <laughs> um, let's take it you know, home a little bit and, and really kind of put a face on it for e-commerce. So you know, as many as 26% of U.S. adults have some form of disability. We're talking almost 60 million people. So that's a huge market that needs to be addressed. And it's an opportunity, you know, to create user experiences that embrace all. So as a brand or, you know, retailer, what have you, what should they be aware of in terms of this process and, and having accessible experiences? Lauren Rose, how about we start with you? 
Sure. And I think that's an incredibly important statistic. You know, that is a lot of people that you could be limiting uh, from not coming to your website, especially for e-commerce. And again, taking it back to that universal design, you know, not only you know, making your website accessible is appealing to that 26% of people who have a disability, but it's also allowing for easier purchase, right? So like that temporary situational situations that consumers can find themselves in if they had access, you know, to these standards and, you know, your website being more accessible, uh, they would also be more inclined to purchase similarly. And, you know, I think that's really, really interesting. I think, again, being mindful of that statistic, I think another example would be um, I see a lot of websites using plugins, um, you know, that kind of help determine that for them. And again, making that universal design so that they aren't called out that it's people first language, that the website itself is as universal as possible for everyone to accomplish what they need to um, is really the best route here. Absolutely. Rose, go ahead. Yeah. So, and I want, I just want to add, like, as companies are trying to basically tap into that market segment, like we've seen recently, I think it was Tommy Hilfiger had a marketing campaign that was like clothing for all bodies. And then they had a bunch of um, people with different physical disabilities. I think the important thing to remember is that disabled people are people you can talk to them right like they're like it's like any other market segment where you know if brands want to do market research they can just find people who fall into that category and talk to them what ask them what they want what they need and you'll get a much better picture of those wants and needs than if you're just kind of like sitting there trying to guess that's amazing and just to kind of close the loop on that the Tommy Hilfiger campaign was done in collaboration with Wonderman Thompson, who, of course, you know, is uh, our, our parent company. So I know Wonderman Thompson has, for several years now, really put a focus on having a, a, a mindset towards accessibility. And it's great bringing it in from the advertising and the product side into what we do at Gorilla Group on the digital side. And then, Rose, I'm going to end this on maybe a, a bit of a, a reach here, but how could I not talk about the metaverse since it's kind of on the tip of everyone's tongue and, and such a buzzy word these days. So everyone is talking about it. It is early days for the metaverse. I say, we just had an episode on this as well. We're, we're years away from a mature metaverse, but can a more accessible virtual realm be created for all of us? Yeah. So, I mean, the metaverse is definitely, like you said, ways away from maturity, but VR as a whole, virtual reality as a whole has a long history. And, you know, like accessible virtual reality is definitely possible. And I'd say even necessary, especially with the kinds of use cases that like Facebook and Meta are pushing. Because we're because in the end, we're talking about equality of access and equality of opportunity. And so that's regardless of the technological limitations, that's something that we need to figure out how to overcome. But like I said, the history of VR has VR has been around for a while, especially in the video game industry. There's a lot of work happening over there about uh, accessibility in virtual reality. Like uh, I remember last year or maybe two years ago at the game accessibility conference, there was a really good talk about virtual reality accessibility actually. And so there's a lot that we can take from the video game industry and apply it to virtual reality as a whole as it expands outside of video games in terms of usage. 
And most people who are working in that space are at least cognizant of problems or potential problems and are working towards a fix. So, you know, we're not at the point where it's perfectly accessible yet, but I'm really optimistic about it. And I'm really excited to see what people come up with because there's a lot of really smart people working in this field right now. And with that said, thank you very much for these valuable insights and for joining us on Commerce Confidential. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you. My pleasure. I'd like to once again thank my guests, Rose Liu and Lauren Rose Coliani, for joining me on today's episode. And thank you very much for listening. I hope you learned as much as I did. Commerce Confidential is a Guerrilla Group, a Wonderman Thompson Company production. Editorial support by Betsy Stewart. Production support by Fiona Jessup. Original music by Adam Lee Murphy. Thanks, Adam. Please like or subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And join us again soon for the next episode of Commerce Confidential. In the meantime, 